This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. World Cancer Day is coming up this weekend and cancer remains the leading cause of death in Canada. And it's responsible for more than 28% of deaths in the country, even though the mortality rate has dropped significantly in the last 30 years. Lung cancer remains the leading cause of cancer death. And nearly one in two Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. That's 43 percent by the numbers. And according to new statistics out of the U.S., nearly two million Americans will receive a diagnosis of cancer this year. Also on our radar, decriminalization of personal possession of hard drugs is in effect in British Columbia as of yesterday. Toronto has also asked Ottawa for permission to decriminalize, and the hope is that this will have an impact in decreasing the number of overdose deaths that have reached epidemic proportions. Now, time for The Medical Record. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Malcolm Moore, a medical oncologist at Princess Margaret and former head of the BC Cancer Agency, Dr. Fahad Razak, an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health and former head of the science advisory table, and Dr. Elisa Naiman, a family physician at the medical station here in Toronto. Hello and welcome to you all. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay, let us begin with the drug decriminalization. Uh, uh, Malcolm, you recently arrived from BC. Uh, How bad would you say the situation is there, and and is this going to help? Well, first of all, Libby, this is is an awful situation uh, in terms of a public health emergency. In B.C., uh, about 2,000 people a year die from drug overdoses, and that number has remained remarkably stable over the last five years. And I think it's not exactly clear how to solve this problem, but it is clear that drug addiction is a disease and doesn't really belong in the criminal justice system. It's a health issue. And criminalizing the possession of small amounts of drugs, I think, clearly makes the situation worse. There are stories, certainly from B.C., of when two people in a hotel room are taking drugs, one has an overdose, the other doesn't really want to call the emergency services because there's drugs in the room, they have a possession of drugs, and they run the risk of criminal prosecution. So... I don't think we would say this is going to solve the problem. It's a small step, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Well, here in Toronto, uh, we're waiting for authorization from Ottawa. And Dr. Razak, you work at St. Mike's. I'm sure you have seen your fair share of drug addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Dr. Moore described it well. The, The criminalization of, this is for personal use, to be clear. This is not talking about decriminalizing people who are distributors or of drugs. This is if someone is caught with a small amount of drugs for their personal use. Um, this criminalization that has existed up to this point will cause behavior that we don't want, like, for example, what Dr. Moore said, but also it'll make it harder for individuals to get out of the spiral that can come with dependency. So, for example, if you have a criminal record, it can be harder to rent an apartment unit. It can be harder to secure employment. So the idea here is that these are people who already have drug dependency, remove some of the barriers to having them reintegrate into society by decriminalizing personal possession. Um, and at St. Michael's, we see a lot of this. We see people who are in a spiral where drug use is part of a larger set of challenges that they're facing. And I think this is a, this is a step in the right direction. This will not solve the problem. I think even the advocates for decriminalization say this is likely a very small step. 
but I think it will probably help more than it will harm. And importantly, when law enforcement or other professionals are called and they encounter someone who does have some personal possession, their their uh, goal now will not be to arrest them. Rather, it'll be to connect them to social services, to uh, people who can, who can help with addiction, other steps that will help to focus on the health outcomes and the social outcomes rather than criminalize. Dr. Naiman, I mean, we all have this, I guess, image of drug addiction on the streets, but it also exists, you know, in the community. What do you find in your practice? Um, I've actually been uh, pretty fortunate. I've only had a couple of patients who have who have, a, have um, issues with drug addiction, and but it brings up a really interesting point that these people are, you would be surprised. They're not on the street. They're just everyday people who things just happen and they get stuck in the spiral of drug addiction. And then it's difficult to go out, to get out. They go to rehab and pretty much their, their whole life falls apart and the families don't know what to do. They don't know if they should help, if they should just like not be involved. And it causes a lot of, of, um, stress and being a family doctor becomes difficult because I'm limited in how I can help people um, in my short 15-minute encounters that I have. So it becomes a challenging issue that we have to look for resources um, to help them. Um, I have read a few things from uh, people who are uh, a bit contrarian on this issue, Dr. Moore, and uh, what they're saying is that there have been some studies that have shown that doing this alone uh, doesn't necessarily work, that in a lot of jurisdictions, there's already de facto decriminalization, and that in a place like Portugal, where it's cited, it's it's come with a big increase in uh, programs for people. And I think that they may actually, in Portugal, be coerced to go into the program. Well, you know, I think, as Fahad said, I'd agree with him that this is this is not the solution. And no one, I don't think, no one would pretend it's the solution. It's part of a basket of initiatives that will help us uh, solve this problem. And there is just no value in arresting people who have an addiction problem because they have possession of small amounts of drugs for their own personal consumption. I mean, the criminals here are the per- the people who are making this stuff that's poisoning our population and the people who are selling and distributing it. And that's who the police need to focus on, not on the poor people who are living day to day because they're addicted to narcotic drugs. Uh, Dr. Razak, uh, what have you seen in terms of the impact of the pandemic on this? Yeah, there's a suspicion globally that uh, this has worsened the situation with drug dependency over overdose deaths um, because of the the uh, fra- the fracture that occurred in continuity of care and access to social services uh, during the pandemic. So, through all of the steps that we had to take to preserve the health system, it meant that many people with less acute issues like ongoing drug dependency had. Um, fractured access. They weren't able to access services as much as they would have liked to. And so the goal here in this, you know, as we start to hopefully pull back from the pandemic period of these last couple of years, is to really refocus partially on providing treatment um, for people who have dependency. And part of providing treatment is uh, making sure they're aware that if they are seeking help, if they're caught with small uses, uh, small quantities of drug for their personal use, that they don't have to uh, worry about prosecution, they can really focus on getting the treatment that they need. So I, I think this is, in, in some ways, I, I'm not surprised that you're seeing these programs come out as we're starting to think about uh, other parts of the health system that were impacted negatively by pandemic measures. And so I do think it's the right thing. I, I, I will be curious to see what happens with Toronto's application. This has been a major issue here in Toronto uh, over the last couple of years. And again, you know, being at St. Michael's, we see this firsthand. So I'll be uh, really curious to see what happens with the application. I hope it's considered strongly. And, you know, I should mention uh, many people have, you know, I think there is legitimate worries about decriminalization, but the goal of this program is also to provide oversight federally uh, through the Canadian Institute for Health Information about the numbers of people impacted. And they have put in pretty strong protections against um, bringing drugs of any kind, even for personal use into areas where, for example, children are present. So, it remains a criminal offense to hold any drugs of any quantities 
in schools or daycares, within airports, et cetera. So I think they've struck the right balance here with the BC approach, and I hope we see something similar here in Ontario. Yeah, a lot of people are wondering why it is taking so long. Uh, let's turn now. World Cancer Day is uh, coming up. And uh, I was just looking at some new American statistics. Uh, about 2 million Americans can expect to be diagnosed with cancer this year, and something over 609,000 people will, will die of the disease. Dr. Moore, do we just divide by 10 and, and figure that it's a similar situation here? You know, more or less. I think in Canada, the, the death rate from cancer is about 85,000 people a year and about um, probably, uh, I think, 200,000 a year diagnosed, 200, 250,000 a year. So it's, it's approximately, you know, dividing by 10. And, you know, the figures are are staggering also. I mean, a, a quarter of us will die from cancer and uh, half of us will develop cancer in our lifetime. So it is arguably the health challenge of this generation uh, and the leading cause of uh, premature death, I think. The other thing I would like to say is is that one of the points of World Cancer Day is to focus on the fact that this is just not a problem in the develop, developed countries. But if you look at uh, the developing countries in Africa or South America, you might think their biggest health challenge is HIV or malaria or other infectious diseases. It's not. It's cancer. The life expectancy in these countries has increased, and they have major challenges providing cancer services to these uh, developing countries. And I think part of the intent of World Cancer Day is, is to focus attention on that as well. Mm-hmm. And they obviously, they, they don't have, I mean, we especially here in Toronto, get great cancer care, and they do not. Yeah, and, you know, if I, while I'm on my soapbox here, Please. I think the other thing we have to think a bit carefully about is, you know, we have problems with health human resources, and there's been a lot of conversations about licensing doctors and other health providers from other countries. I think we have to think carefully about doing that uh, if we're actually stealing um cancer specialists from developing countries because those those countries invest a lot in training people and I just think we have to be cautious if we're starting to recruit we don't really want to be recruiting from countries that are desperately short of cancer specialists and and are we doing that now I mean I I know that there are a, a lot of people who come from other places who work in the space well, I don't think we're doing it intentionally, but I, I just think we have to be careful that if we're, uh, as we start to think about how we expand our own health workforce uh, in Canada, that we don't create problems elsewhere. Uh, Dr. Naiman, uh, in your practice, uh, does that uh, very scary statistic of nearly one in two, are you seeing that? And, and you know, cancer is a, a disease of aging and our population is aging. Um, I don't know if I see one in two, but um, in the last couple of weeks, I've had three patients who've been diagnosed with cancer and currently are undergoing treatment. I think it's the biggest fear of everybody. Anytime anybody has a headache or any new symptom, their first fear is that they have cancer. I know all women become very concerned about breast cancer. Um, so it's just... It's the biggest fear that people have, probably more than heart disease, although heart disease is the number one killer, but everybody is terrified of getting cancer. That I can tell you. Okay. And Dr. Razak, um, uh, what is your experience of, of that? Yeah, actually, it's, um, I, you know, so I, I care for patients who are hospitalized um, with acute issues, including cancer-related issues, but could be a heart attack, could be pneumonia, could be COVID. And the statistic of one in two affected, I think, is really something that is notable to me in the sense that we have many people who come in with uh, an unrelated to cancer health issue, let's say a pneumonia, and you'll see that they are a cancer survivor. It really is uh, miraculous to see how long people have lived, the many people who now survive through an initial cancer diagnosis because of the advances in treatment and who are getting up to older age where now the issues they're facing are not from that cancer, but from unrelated issues. And so I think the advances that we've seen, the reduction in mortality that was 
uh, flagged in this U.S. report. There's been remarkable progress, obviously still an incredible amount to do. And I, I think it's a really a condition that affects all of us. All of us have friends and family who've been directly impacted by this. So you can see both the advances that are made, but still the enormous suffering from it. Mm-hmm. And uh, my understanding is that still in the last decade, the biggest advance, Dr. Moore, is immunotherapy. Yeah, I think I think that would be fair to say. Uh, I mean, as our understanding of cancer as a disease has increased, then then we have been able to develop new therapies. But I think I, I think what people need to understand is that cancer is not going to be solved by a single discovery or a single drug or a single treatment. And if you look at the the statistics, you know, there's been let's say a thirty three percent reduction in cancer deaths over the last 30 years. I mean, that's been a slow, gradual improvement. It's sort of been 1% to 2% a year. It isn't like there's been a jump all of a sudden from, you know, 50% survival to 70% survival. But I I think there's no question this idea of turning your own immune system uh, against the cancer uh, has been the most exciting development in cancer therapy in the past 10 years. I'd certainly agree with that. And... uh do we know, and I say we, I mean researchers know uh, why it works in certain cancers and not others and in certain people and not others? Um, you know, that's a really good question. And the answer is we don't really know. Like, we do know that there are certain cancers, lung cancer, skin cancer, kidney cancer, where immune-based therapies are more effective than some other tumors. But identifying the patients where immunotherapy is going to work effectively versus not effectively, we are able to do that to some degree now by some certain genetic tests that we can do, but it's still not an exact science. But there's a lot of work going on in that area to try and understand the exact mechanisms what whereby you can stimulate your own body's immune system to fight off your cancer. And, and on the cancer note, I have to extend congratulations to uh, one of Dr. Moore's colleagues, and uh, I have the honor to be involved in this, but uh, a group all across Canada has just received a what's called a breakthrough grant from the Canadian Cancer Society. It's a huge grant. It's uh, up to $40 million over five years, and uh, what they're hoping to do is to move the needle on pancreatic cancer, which still has a very low survival rate. Uh, uh, Dr. Moore, what's your reaction to that? You know, I think that's fabulous news. And I I think that there are certain cancers that have kind of lagged behind in terms of advances or have been more difficult to treat. So I think this decision by the Canadian Cancer Society to support research into these difficult-to-treat cancers like brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, stomach cancer. I think it's a very, uh, I think it's a very good, innovative approach, and I'm very successful that the team, uh, this team across Canada, many of whom I know very well, have been successful. Okay, well, uh, that is very good news. Uh, this week, uh, the World Health Organization basically said uh, COVID is still an emergency, but we're in a better place than we were a year ago. And this is coming in, in my mind as in the public, there is zero appetite for any kind of restrictions. And, and, uh, Dr. Razak, you, you don't even see a lot of people wearing masks. Yeah, I think there is, uh, there is a growing disconnect between what some officials are saying uh, about the importance of still recognizing the damage that's happening from the virus uh, versus where governments, many governments are and where the public is. And I'm, you know, I'm on the side of saying we, we need to learn to find a way to safely manage the virus, but we are not past it. It is causing enormous harm still. And, you know, the, the, the statistics cited by the WHO director uh, in making the decision to continue the emergency declaration was that rather than having a drop in deaths, you actually saw a rise in deaths towards the end of 2022. Uh, their estimate is a minimum, and this is probably an underestimate, of 170,000 deaths globally in the last eight weeks. 
And 2022 was actually the year where more people died from COVID than any year of the pandemic. More people died than in 2020 or 2021. So clearly there is still harm. Now, this is not ignoring the enormous advances that have been made. You know, I have been frontline in hospital for every wave of the pandemic. And early in the pandemic, the, the COVID pneumonias that were coming in were frightening. People with severe oxygen deficit um, put on ventilators very quickly. Many of them died. We're not seeing the disease present for most people that way anymore. It is rarely presenting as a COVID pneumonia unless you're very susceptible, older in age, or, or have a suppressed immune system, for example. Um, it, but it's presenting as an illness that tips over other illnesses for many people, so making underlying heart failure worse or asthma or lung disease, um, triggering deliriums in people. And that is still a major issue. We, we are still seeing that in Canada. During each wave, we see more people come in uh, with those conditions. And the, and the reasons that the WHO flagged as wanting to continue this emergency, emergency declaration, I think much of that is still true in Canada. So, for example, they, they, they flagged the fragility of health systems, problems with acute care, and the capacity demands. I mean, that's very true in Canada. Um, the rise of pseudoscience and misinformation, again, a major issue in Canada, um, and access, early access to anti antivirals and early treatment, which we know we're underutilizing things like Paxlovid in Canada. So I think some of these issues really still apply here as much as all of us, including myself, want to be past the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Naiman, in your practice, uh, are you seeing less uh, people who were afflicted with COVID, as well as flu, RSV, and all of that that was uh, so bad towards the end of last year? Well, last week I had told you that I thought that I hadn't been seeing a lot of people with COVID, but in the week, more people have uh, tested positive with with COVID. And, and I would say I deal with a population, you know, that it's generally healthy. They're not being hospitalized. And for my older patients who've had five vaccines, they're actually doing very well. They'll have minor symptoms and recover. So that's really good news. And I try to reinforce it to the patient that this is, you know, you've been up to date with all of your vaccines. You've had a fifth shot since the fall, and they seem to do really well. Um, people are starting to access care through pharmacies and um through some of the COVID assessment centers and are getting um, Paxlovid more easily now. So that's also very good to see. But just in general, things were really bad in the office end of October with the little kids having RSV and then adults getting it and then influenza. Things seem to be settling down. It's just there's been a little bit of a bump up recently now with COVID. It happened at like around Christmas time and then it slowed a little bit and now it seems to be picking up. Okay, well, that is uh, not good news. I'm looking at the clock. It's time to go around the virtual table with uh, what our panelists would like to leave us with. Dr. Razak. Yeah, I'll close with just that point from Dr. Naiman, which is that um, as much as we'd like to move on, uh, it's still an issue. So we are in the midst of a surge of the virus uh, variant that was on the U.S., XBB.1.5, uh, called Kraken by many. Um, that surge is occurring right now in Canada and Ontario. Um, about 40 to 50% of all infections are now from that version of the virus. And so uh, get vaccinated, get yourself protected, because uh, we have some of the tools now. So please use them. And uh, Dr. Moore, last word to you. Well, I think that uh, just to place the COVID in context, you know, in the last three years, around 50,000 Canadians died from COVID, which is very distressing. In the same time period, five times that many people died of cancer, uh, four times that many people died of vascular diseases. So I think COVID is with us, I think, permanently. It is one of the many health challenges that we're facing and we really have to find a way to live with it and with the challenges that it faces. And I think as the other speakers have identified, the good thing is that there are ways of uh, reducing your risk of getting COVID and of uh, treating COVID uh, when you get it. But I, I think it's, it's going to be with us just like the flu and many other diseases are. And we're just going to have to keep keep an eye on it to make sure people are vaccinated and uh, improve the treatments for people who do have COVID. Okay, well, thank you so much all for this week's medical record. Thank you, Dr. Malcolm Moore, Dr. Elisa Naiman, and Dr. Fahad Razak. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Libby. Thanks. 
And uh, now I have some medical news of my own. Uh, so some of you may have noticed that I have been absent a lot more than usual. And the reason is that I have been recently diagnosed with cancer again. Now, the good news is that this is not a recurrence. It is a new cancer, and that means it is potentially curable. Uh, I just want to tell people why I am uh, you know, have a few days off every couple of weeks. Um, it took a while to get a diagnosis. Uh, I've written about it in Zoomer magazine. Uh, I am, uh, as always, getting excellent care at Princess Margaret. Now, last time when I had pancreatic cancer 14 years ago, I got a novel use of chemotherapy, and this time I will also be getting immunotherapy, and I'm very, very hopeful about that. Uh, one thing I certainly have been getting is like a huge amount of support from my family, my husband, Doug, my brothers, Moses and Sam, my friends and my family here at work where everybody has just been great and very accommodating and also stepping in uh, when I am not here. Uh, and uh, so far, so good, you know, knock whatever I'm knocking uh, I'm doing well. We're managing. My intention is uh, the best way to keep going is to keep going. You know, I've got to do my treatment, but I intend to keep working when I can and to keep doing all the other things that I love, like tennis, like cooking, like seeing my friends. You know, I'm just going to be living my life. And, uh, you know, um, I don't necessarily want to dwell on this. So I am just informing people. Uh, and uh, I'm doing just fine. And thanks to everybody. And right now we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we will be talking to a representative of the Yazidi community. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Last week, we reported the government's intention to repatriate Canadian ISIS brides and their children who are currently being held in Kurdish-run camps. This was followed by a judge's decision that the Canadian men held there, former ISIS fighters, also need to be brought back to our country. The decision is causing fear and trauma in Canada's Yazidi community. Now, the Yazidis were brought here. They came here as refugees from ISIS-held territory after their community members were terrorized. They were massacred or sold into sex slavery by the Islamic State. Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Jamila Nasso, president of the Canadian Yazidi Association. Uh, Jamila, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, what was your reaction when you found out about this decision? Um, so initially, we were just really shocked and in disbelief. I mean, we've been working for over four years to help and try to reunite Yazidi families who have already settled in Canada. And we've gotten, you know, nowhere with any of these cases. And then we hear that, you know, the government will be reuniting Islamic state fighters to their families and their communities here in Canada, we were just left in disbelief. And, and it was a lot of re-triggering and, and trauma for for survivors who are in Canada. So it was, it, you know, and it continues to evolve. And, and we're seeing situations of individuals um, every day calling us and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, this is this, this anxiety and the stress is really starting to build on a lot of families here. Now, is this, uh, focused on the idea of bringing the men back or is it the same for bringing, uh, the women and their children? 
So it's really, I mean, many people don't like when they think about, you know, terrorists and things like that, they think of men and the role of women tends to be overlooked. But, you know, women who join the Islamic State have held a variety of different roles from logistics board, espionage, giving birth to new terrorists. Um, and, and in leading the sex trafficking ring of Yazidi women and girls, and, and of course, recruitment of foreign nationals and locals, um, they were involved in more combating roles as they began to lose territory. And I really want to stress here that, you know, women involved with the Islamic State were just as active in the terrorist activities and the genocide as the men were. So we should be just as fearful of the women as we are of the men. Uh, yeah, we we heard all these horrific stories from Yazidi refugees about uh, men being massacred, women being sold into sex slavery at, at like extremely young ages, children, basically. Yeah, some girls as young as 10 years old were, 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 were enslaved, were raped, were sold to neighboring countries. And, and to date, there are over 2,700 Yazidis who remain in captivity, and most of them are children and teens. Um, you know, many brainwashed and forced to become child soldiers, young women and girls, you know, sold across the Middle East, unwilling victims of human trafficking and sexual-based gender violence. And no effort has been made by Canada or the global community to return these children to their families. So it's, 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 priorities are really mixed up here. Hmm. Um, what do you say? I mean, people say, oh, um, they respond. They're saying, um, you know, the women, uh, we made a mistake. We realized our mistake. And now we have these children and we're Canadian citizens. And, and, uh, the other argument from people who want to bring them back, they say, well, uh, you know, they're, they're, may have to face justice here in Canada. What do you say to those arguments? Yeah. So a number of different things. So I just want to say these individuals chose to leave Canada, chose to leave the security, the freedom, the rights they're guaranteed by being Canadian citizens here. Um, And there were clear messages from the government and a number of different bodies that these, these countries were flagged as high conflict zones. The Islamic State themselves was using social media, sharing videos of beheadings of foreigners, of locals, and committing mass atrocities. And, and in a lot of cases, these individuals here, Canadians, chose to take their kids to these areas as well for the purpose of joining this group. And that in and of itself is a crime. And the next is the this, you know, call to justice wanting to try them here in Canada. Well, we know that that is nearly impossible because the evidence and testimonies aren't in Canada to hold these individuals in Canadian courts. Um, and, and there's a few cases where, where that is the case, and they are being tried in here in Canada, but the number far exceeds that of individuals of who, who were involved in the terrorist organization who arrive in Western countries again, and they're not tried, and there's zero ramifications, you know, for the crimes they've committed. And, and that's, you know, that's just, to put it simply, wrong, and that's not right. I'm going to take a call from Karen and Bolton. Hello, Karen. Oh, hi, Libby. Um, I just uh, actually just listening to what this person has to say with regard to everything. She's pretty well covered my points of view that if you make a choice to leave the country and fight against your own country over there, why do you think you have any rights to come back? I don't understand it. That's where I'm coming from. Okay, Karen. Thank you for that. Uh, I mean, um, Jamila, the, uh, the other Western countries, uh, have repatriated at least some of their ISIS people, though, uh, in Britain, uh, there at least one lost citizenship. Yeah, and that's actually one of the individuals who Canada will now be repatriating. And, you know, I just talked about, you know, the women's role in this organization, but, and, and a lot of Western countries have repatriated women and children, but that's women and children. Canada is one of the first countries to now repatriate men who were involved in the organization. So that's also setting a very scary precedent. And, and I think that goes completely against what we stand for internationally um, as a country. You know, here we are supporting women, peace, security uh, at the global stage. And a decision like this, I think, completely goes against, you know, what Canadians believe we should be standing for as a country and what we um, share on the global stage. 
and what do you hope to accomplish? Because uh, this is a judge's decision. And my understanding is that the government may actually appeal it. But um, have you been in touch with your political representatives? And what are you hoping to accomplish with this? Um, so we have reached out to a number of different government officials. We have yet to hear back um, from any of them on, on this situation. Um, but like I said, like Yazidi families in Canada are still waiting to be reunited with their loved ones. And I, uh, we've been petitioning for family reunification with little to no progress over these past four years. So we're really calling on the government to facilitate and accelerate that family reunification of Yazidis. Um, who've already settled in Canada, and, and to really take a leadership role in enforcing that they will hold those accountable who took part in the genocide and, and seek justice for survivors, because this decision really sends a message that we're prioritizing the reunification of these involved, of those individuals involved in terrorist activities over those of survivors. And, and I... Uh, I, I just want to run one more thing by you, and uh, we have not really covered this yet, but uh, I was quite surprised uh, when I saw there's a move that there are some of these ISIS brides who are not Canadian citizens, but their children are, because they had Canadian fathers, and apparently our government offered to bring the children back, but not the women, and there's some kind of hue and cry saying, oh my goodness, this is so inhumane. Are you aware of that? What's your reaction to that? I mean, it's it's not surprising. We know like these situations um, happen in those in those conflict zones. But it really feels these individuals who chose to go there are now holding, you know, the values we stand for as Canadians against us. They're saying, you know, we they chose to go and fight and commit mass atrocities and join terrorist organizations. But now they're flipping and using, you know, these very ideals and freedoms that we as Canadians, you know, regard very highly against us and saying, how could you leave us in a you know, in a camp with horrible living conditions and all these things. But, you know, we're missing that you chose to go there. Hmm. Right. Very interesting. And uh, I hope you'll keep us apprised on your efforts. And thank you so much for telling us about that, Jamila Nasso. Will do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. We are taking another break and uh, another very uh, big segue. When we come back, it's the coldest day of the year, but think about sitting on a patio when things get warmer. And uh, that patio program that was fantastic, well, uh, it's getting really expensive. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's probably the coldest day of the year. And think about how you'll feel, though, when you'll be able to sit on a restaurant patio again. Toronto's Cafe T.O. program was a lifesaver to the restaurant community, which was suffering from pandemic losses. And it was a boon to us all. People loved it. The city wants to make it permanent. But City staff proposed charging thousands of dollars in fees to participating businesses, which, by the way, are still trying to recover from pandemic losses. Now, city council, or the executive anyway, and the mayor want city staff to find another way. What do you think? Um, when we get into the discussion, I'll give you some of these rather eye-popping numbers. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'm now joined by Toronto City Councillor Paula Fletcher, Ward 14, Toronto Danforth, and Robert Chi, the owner and operator of Aviv Immigrant Kitchen on St. Clair West, and he's also the chair of the Hillcrest BIA. And uh, full disclosure, that's in my neighborhood, and my husband is a lunch regular there. Hello, and welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Uh, let's start with you, Robert. So I'm, uh, let me go over some of these fees. So it would include a one-time application fee of 865 dollars and uh 
restaurant operators would pay about fifteen hundred bucks for a sidewalk patio and over three thousand for a curb lane patio. Um, as you're trying to recover, and you know, in, in the summer, St. Clair is full of patios, Robert. So, uh, what do you think that would do? Oh, well, we need we do need the patios. Uh, the um, the rates are charging us very, very. It's very expensive. Uh, we are still recovering for the last three years of pandemic, and these are just the fees of numbers that uh, we're, we're talking about. Also, people uh, have to get involved into designing the patio as well, and also the stamp of the engineer as well. So these are just these uh, preliminary numbers. The numbers are a lot more inflated than that that, that we're talking about right now. Okay, and uh, give give us a sense of that. So, how much would that you have to have a a, a better design for the curbside? I'm, and uh, you have to pay professionals. So, um, what is involved with that, and including your time, I guess. Yeah, including time and the labor that's involved in designing it. Uh, we believe in accessibility for sure. But uh, you know, I heard the average stamp we're pricing out right now as we speak. But we uh, the average stamp from an engineer is about two thousand dollars. And plus, plus, plus of the design as well. Prior to that, as well, and building as well. So it's it's the numbers that are given to us by the city right now. It's just the preliminary numbers, and there's a lot more uh, cost involved beyond what they've given us so far. What what's estimated so far? Okay, so uh, you know what I'm hearing from you is that this sounds like it's uh, more like a ten thousand uh, dollar enterprise. Paula Fletcher, what's your reaction to that? You know, I've been listening to my BIAs, and hi, Robert, uh, in my part of the world, and the current proposal truly uh, would probably kill the CAFE TO program. The good news is that at Executive Committee yesterday, uh, the mayor listened, made a motion to ask staff to come up with how we can lower those costs significantly. And for you, Robert, the Toronto Association of BIA's John Carew has taken it upon himself and them to go to people, uh, get the engineering stamp. In other words, one-stop shopping. Not everybody would have to do it themselves. But uh, businesses are still not recovered from the pandemic. As a matter of fact, Restaurants Canada came yesterday and said they've done a survey. And if it proceeds the way it is, over 60% of those those businesses that had the curbside cafes wouldn't have them. Uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm uh, looking at it and the city so far... I think it was a, a good thing. Uh, covered the costs of administering the program, but it, it wasn't cheap. More than twenty million dollars. Uh, Paula Fletcher, given the current budget crunch, uh, you know, uh, if it continues to cover it, what isn't that like another big hole? Well, I think there'll have to be some fees because uh, last year it was free. You know, for the pandemic, it was completely free. And there were 865 curbside patios. That's pretty great. My ward had 130 of those. But 12% of businesses had a patio and didn't use it. It was very costly to uh, enforce that removal, took parking away. So there has to be some cost. We'll call it an entrance fee. There's got to be some permit fee. But I don't support the thousands of dollars of permit fees that would be required here. And I do think we're going to look at drastically reducing everybody's ability to have one of these patios. But once you have to pay something and work to make it look great and have a platform, the serious folks like Robert, they will continue. And people that didn't really use it a lot last year, they probably won't. Robert, uh, was there anyone on uh, your stretch of St. Clair West who didn't really use it? I mean, when I would walk up there, it looked like uh, it was uh, hard to get a seat everywhere. Oh, well, there's a few spots that we're using it. That, that I agree with you, Paula. Uh, there's you know, a few uh, few spots on our west side of the, the where we are did not use it. But people that want to use it, it's, um, it's, it's going to be very costly. We're going we're gonna, to... Uh, I think some people that were using last year would not be involved this year with all the costs that are involved in it. Uh, yes, I believe in there should be costs in it. Yes, I believe that, uh, I, I believe that we should be doing this, uh, cafe deal to, uh, cause we have not been doing for, uh, we have not been doing well for the last few years and in this season, you know, we can keep it vibrant. So we keep it, keep it healthy. Uh, people need to go out and have some fun again. So that's, I agree with that. How important was it, Robert, uh, to the bottom line for the patios, uh, for the restaurants that, that used it? 
Oh, very much so. Very much so. Uh, the bottom line, uh, we employ uh, a lot more than what we're employing right now throughout the uh, throughout the summer as compared to the winter when the uh, cafe tea was taken away, obviously, for, for weather sake. But uh, uh, as far as uh, employment as well, we, were, we had like 20, 25 staff uh, on full time. But now we, we reduced to right now we're running about 12 to 15 people right now. So it's, uh, it's bottom line and also keeping the community employed as well. Uh, Paula Fletcher, do you have any kind of sense of what an appropriate level of fees would be? Well, just maybe just the entrance fee, uh, 300, 500. There's the application fee, 800, and then assistance with the platforms. I don't want to see people driven out of this program. Use yourself, Libby. People love to go out and sit out there. It creates a beautiful street. I know the Danforth has been transformed. St. Clair has been transformed. It just makes a very special place for our city. So we can't lose it. And I think the mayor heard that yesterday very strongly from Tabia, from Restaurants Canada, from councillors like myself and Shelley Carroll that said, hold on, we don't want to kill this program. So there has to, we have to find the sweet spot, um, where, where you're going to come in. There's going to be some costs. The other thing is, it has to be very strongly, the city feels it's got to be accessible. Right now, these patios are not accessible for people that have a disability. They can't wheel on there. They might fall off the curb, and these little ramps aren't working. So we're trying to figure that out, too, because it is just like every city street, there's that disability issue when we have to meet certain standards. But it's not at the expense of killing the program. And why? Because we heard yesterday the Cafe T.O., restaurants that were operating, the 800 and so of them, brought in $220 million to Toronto's economy. Wow. That's not a small number. So they really, and, and you know, with a restaurant, as, as Robert says, he's got all those extra staff to do that. You're getting your vegetables, you're getting your fruit, you're locally sourcing most of the things. So it's very good for Toronto's economy. And I don't think that got factored in when they brought this fees report forward. And, you know, the other thing that it occurs to me is that with inflation and everything, you know, restaurant prices in general have gone up a lot. And if restaurateurs have to start passing on a cost like this, I would imagine that going out is going to get prohibitive for a lot of people. We have to keep it very affordable, reasonable, and see this as um, not just a program where we're having cost recovery, but something that drives a lot of dollars into the economy of the city that creates a beautiful public realm on many streets. And that is a lifeline still for all of the restaurants that COVID may be over, but it's not over for restaurants. There are so many that are still failing. We need the lifeline. They need the lifeline. I'm very committed to making sure this happens next week at City Council. I, I just you, want Paula. to correct you on one thing, Councillor Fletcher, because we just had our medical panel today. COVID is not over. Oh, okay. It's it's over from the sense of people going out and, yeah. you know, no six feet distancing. And that was one of the original things with the cafes was to have, make sure everybody could be safely together. But it has a whole different dynamic now of just being a really incredible Toronto branded program that is well loved and well used and is so important to the survival of a lot of small business, small restaurants. Uh, Robert, um, what are you doing along with other BIAs to kind of uh, push this forward? We're working together. We, we're we're going to, um, you know, as far as the planning is concerned, uh, I'm working with uh, with the uh, with the other BIA members, uh, my neighbors, my uh, restaurant neighbors as well. Uh, uh, make sure it, it keeps St. Clair West vibrant, keeps St. Clair West uh, pretty, uh, keep uh, keep the community within the community. Let them uh, stay here, let them eat here, let them dine here, let them shop here. Uh, we'll do what we can, and and at what cost? Uh, what cost would it be to do that? That that will be the question, right? You know, is it feasible? Is you know, is, is it when the budget? And as you know, we have uh, a lot of restaurants borrow money to survive the last three years right and and we got to pay back eventually and we are paying back but we got to pay more back eventually right so it's uh it's we're working hard we're working hard to keep people in the community that's and we need the cafe to do that that is a 
big piece of the puzzle for Sinclair West uh, to to do that. Um, no, we've got to. We need it. We need it. Okay, and uh, can I just say that go ahead. the federal government would be great if they would pause that requirement in 2023 to repay the loans. You remember there was loans yes. to pay the rent, oh, and they're very... all due this year. So yeah. it's a pile on. Uh, they, the city will do what we can do to make sure everybody can be part of this program that wants to be. But the federal government does need to pull back a bit and not make it so hard to collect twenty. Forty, sometimes sixty thousand dollars. And uh, have there been representations to the federal government to do that? Is that on the table somewhere? I know they've been asked to push that back, but so far they haven't, to my knowledge. Robert, you might know. Uh, they haven't. No, no, they have not. Uh, that's a hundred percent, Paula. Uh, they have not uh, pushed it back. There's no letter through our emails. Uh, there's. Uh, I don't. Ha- I don't see anything coming to the banks as well. So, uh, no, they haven't, as uh, far as my knowledge is concerned. And, and who's they? Like, where, uh, who would have to uh, either uh, lengthen the payback period? I mean, who's the they? They would be the federal government. Uh, well, who there? The what agency? Who administered this program to start with? You remember there was a rent supplement to keep people being able right. to pay their rent. And so I guess MPs could weigh in and do that, but so far... Uh, that hasn't happened. And that's unfortunate because it's just another really big pressure um, on, on restaurants and small, all small business, but restaurants who are trying to be part of Cafe TO have that extra pressure from the rent repayment. Okay. Uh, well, good luck to both of you in you. getting those fees down to a reasonable level. And uh, we're all looking forward to sitting on a patio again. Thank you so much, Paula Fletcher and Robert Chi. Thank you. Thank you nice to meet you, Robert. Nice, nice to meet you, Paula. Talk okay. soon. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. And uh, before we close, once again, uh, uh, I did disclose that I've been diagnosed with another cancer. It's not a recurrence, which is good news. It's potentially curable. But for a lot of the listeners who've noticed that uh, I've been absent a little more than usual, and that is going to continue, I have a treatment on Friday. I'm hoping to be back here in the chair next Wednesday. Uh, and And uh, thanks to everyone who has been so supportive. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.